a subject that is number 15 in the series. So there are 14 parts before this one. So if you come to this subject and think, where's this fit in? Well, it's number 15. <laughs> so uh, I want to let you know that the other 14 messages that we've shared in the Is God For Real series are now available for you to listen to. And uh, we, we passed out a, a bookmark with a link on it. It'll be uh, published in the bulletin next week, I imagine. We'll send out an email as well so that you can listen to the messages that have been uh, delivered, presented before this one. So to sort of hopefully make sense. But today we're talking about the meaning of hell. And some people might ask the question, why on earth would you want to talk about that subject? Why on earth would you want to say anything about that? Can't we talk about something, you know, more um, loving, <laughs> perhaps? Um, I was sort of thinking about retitling uh, the topic, The Good News About Hell. Because we might think, how is it possible that there could ever be any good news about hell? And we want to unpack that today. You know, maybe one of the good news is, is that you could go to hell today, spend two-week vacation there, and come out completely unscathed. Did you know that? And that is because hell is a place. It's a town. There is a town called hell, and it's in Michigan, the USA, only in the USA, right? Um, there's a place called, called hell, and um, apparently you, uh, you could take the highway to hell, and you could get there, or, or in the wintertime, hell even freezes over, because it's Michigan, right? Um, could you imagine marrying somebody from that town? I married the wife from hell. I guess you could say husband too, right? <laughs> you, you would never want to say that. But some people live there, right? I don't know why you would ever want to call your town hell. I, haven't, I have to do the research and find out why on earth they chose to call it the hell. But that's their town. But of course, biblically, the subject of hell, of course, has big implications because... It has implications for who we think God is and what kind of a God we choose to serve. In fact, the subject of hell, or perhaps some of the misconceptions about hell, have caused more people to turn away God, from God than perhaps any other thing. And in terms of our concept of what hell is, there are probably two extremes. There is the idea of eternal torment, which is the popular view of hell. And as a kid... When I was growing up, I was very aware of the popular view of hell. It's actually, you, you see references to it throughout our, our Western culture. Even if you don't believe in it, you see references to this eternally burning torment. And many people have rejected God because of that view of God. And uh, I would have been one of those. I would have thought, well, if you did believe in God, that kind of topic doesn't make any sense, like why would God torture people for all eternity, and you sort of say, well, I'll have nothing to do with that. Others who still want to believe in the God of the Bible, but who would reject eternal torment, run to another extreme, which is universal salvation. That is that, hey, the Bible says God is love, and God is so loving that he's just going to take us all to paradise. He's going to take us all to heaven. And you might have committed the most heinous crimes against individuals or against societies or even against nations. 
but that's okay. God's going to embrace you anyway and take you to heaven and everybody gets saved. I want to talk today about what the Bible says about this subject so that we can see what the Bible has to say. You see, some people think that, well, hell, it's not a very pleasant subject, so let's just pretend it doesn't exist. Hell just doesn't exist. Other people who have been the victims of crimes or have been the victims of the state who have uh, practiced atrocities against humanity, they say, well, thank God there's a hell because there will be a recompense. So there are different people who have different views on this subject and we want to have a look at what does the Bible say. Before we go anywhere, we just want to notice this verse in 2 Peter 3.9 which tells us that the Lord is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. It's God's desire that everybody should be saved. And maybe that's where people get the idea of universal salvation. God wants everybody to be saved. If we doubt that, we can just look at uh, John 3.16 where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. He loves everybody. He wants everybody to be saved. But he invites us to embrace that. And so the Lord is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. We're going to look at the subject of hell in terms of four questions When is hell? When does hell take place? Are people burning in hell today? Where is hell? Is it somewhere on Mars or somewhere down yonder or where is hell? What is hell and how long does it last? We want to know the answers to those questions. So let's get into it. Number one, when is hell? When does hell take place biblically? There is a parable that Jesus told to his disciples in Matthew 13, 24 to 30. The parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said, uh, a landowner had some servants, they went out and sowed wheat, but then an enemy came and sowed tares. And he describes, he explains this parable about when the harvest is and when it will all take place. He says, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's a reference to himself, Jesus. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And of course, we talked about the devil in our third presentation, I think it was, when we talked about how much, uh, why so much suffering. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. In other words, clearly Jesus taught that the destruction of the wicked and the reward of the righteous was at the end of the age, or, to put it more clearly, when Jesus returns, the end of the world. Okay, that is when hell begins or takes place, or that's when uh, the the rewards, if you like, are given out. Uh, In fact, so... This is important to know because there are some people who wonder about loved ones they've lost, relatives they've lost, friends they've lost, who've passed away and they're not sure about their spiritual condition and they wonder, are they burning in hell today? And they're not. The Bible clearly tells us that that is not the case. You know, Jesus promised his disciples and whoever would listen, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's gone up to heaven to prepare a place for us. But then he tells us who 
hell and hellfire is prepared for. Notice what it says. Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Apparently hell is prepared for the devil and his angels. But Jesus has said, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going to prepare heaven for us. Apparently the devil and his angels have crossed a point beyond which there is no return. That's not true for us. The gates of mercy are still open. But apparently the devil and his angels have passed a point beyond which there's no return. Now you'll notice in that verse, it says, into the everlasting fire. Well, that kind of sounds like it's everlasting fire to me. What does that mean? Well, hold tight. We'll unpack that as we go through this presentation. So where is hell? If hell will not take place until the end of the world, where is hell to take place? In 2 Peter 3.10, the Bible says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So where is hell? It's in Wall's End. Well, everywhere else as well. On the earth, right? It's the earth, according to the scriptures. It's the earth that's going to be cleansed by this burning fire. We're going to look at some stories in the Bible, some scriptures, and what we're going to do today is we're using the unabridged version. In other words, we're going to look at some verses that perhaps we haven't looked at in a while because maybe we like to look at selected verses in the Bible, but God has given us a whole Bible. He's given us a whole Bible that he wants us to understand. We're going to look at some verses in the Bible that maybe we haven't looked at. The Bible gives us an example of what the destruction of the wicked will look like in the end of time. In Jude, verse 7, Jude only has one chapter, but in verse 7, he talks about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a, a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And there's that phrase again, eternal fire. Does that mean that it burns eternally? Well, hang in there. Notice what it says in another passage. In 2 Peter, he picks up this same idea about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Ashes. It says into ashes. Now, if something has been turned into ashes, is it still burning? Well, it might be for a little bit, but it's not going to burn forever, right? Because it's been turned into ashes. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So talking about the destruction of the wicked at the end of time, Sodom and Gomorrah are used as examples, and if we weren't to say any more, there you would have an example of what the destruction of the wicked looked like. The Bible goes on to say, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, the Bible says that when Hell, whatever that is, has done its work. There will be neither root nor branch. There will be nothing left. 
The Bible does not teach that God burns and torments the wicked forever and ever and ever. And in fact, that is a pagan idea, and we'll come to that a little later. But we want to note that it says it will leave them neither root nor branch. It will consume them. In fact, Psalm 37 verse 20 said, But the wicked shall perish into smoke. They shall vanish away. Vanish means you can't find them anymore. Vanish away. All right. Jesus talked about the saved and the lost many times. And in Matthew 25, you remember, he talked about the sheep and the goats. And he says of the lost, he says, of these were, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Well, when he says everlasting punishment, that surely sounds like it's going to be everlasting. But what we need to understand is that it is the punishment that is everlasting not the punishing. In other words, there will be punishment, there will be recompense for the wicked, but it will not last forever. It will be limited in its scope. You know, you know in, in the Bible, there's a term uh, that's used when the Bible uses the word forever. We will look at that and we'll often think, well, that means an ending forever, 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 right? But in the Bible, forever can mean a definite period of time. And we kind of know that's true even in our own experience, don't we? Sometimes we'll say to people, oh, it took forever for the train to arrive. Or it took forever for the pizza to arrive. Right? And we'll use that term forever, even though we know there's a limit to it. Notice what the Bible says in, in Jonah 2.6. He says... His Jonah is talking about the fact that he was thrown overboard from this ship and this great fish that God had prepared swallowed him and kept him safe for three days. Can you imagine? And then he escaped from that. But he says, I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up, up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He's saying, I was down there forever, yet God brought me out. <laughs> So he couldn't have been forever, right? I guess it seemed like forever, being there in the, uh, the smelly old fish for about three days. I wouldn't want to be there for three minutes. But uh, that's what the Bible says. It reminds me of a story, actually. Some, uh, somebody told me this story. There was a, a lady who was sitting on a train reading the Bible. And uh, a man got on and he had his tablet there and he was sweeping away and looking at his tablet and he looked over to the woman and she was reading the Bible and he said to her, well, he sort of glanced for a while and then he thought, I've got to say something. He said, um, excuse me, I um, hope you don't mind me asking, do you actually believe what you're reading? And she said, yes, yes, I do. And he said, you mean to say that you actually believe that God created the world in six days? And she said, Yes, yes, I do. He said, you mean, mean to say that you actually believe that God parted the Red Sea and Moses and the children of Israel walked across on dry ground? You actually believe that happened? Yes, yes, I do. He said, do you, do you actually believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and he stayed in the fish for three days and survived? And she said, yes, I believe that. And he said, well, what did Jonah breathe while he was there? And she said, I don't know. But when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And he says, what if he's not in heaven? And she said, well, you ask him. 
But anyway, so Jonah said he was there forever, and obviously he wasn't there forever. We see this in 1 Samuel as well. Hannah had no children. She begged the Lord for children. She prayed. The priest said, God will grant you a child. She gave birth to a child. His name was Samuel. And uh, Hannah said, then I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And then in another verse, it says, as long as he lives, that's how long it shall last. So sometimes the word forever is used in the Bible, but it actually can mean a, a, a certain period of time. There was a uh, theologian and a preacher, Edward Fudge. He was uh, with the Church of Christ. And uh, he wrote a book called The Fire That Consumes. And he did a big study on what the Bible teaches about hell. And he said this, The word ionos in the Greek means forever, but within the limits of the possibility inherent in the person or thing itself. When God is said to be eternal, that is truly forever. When the mountains are said to be everlasting, that means that they last ever so long, or so long as they can last. So we need to understand that about the language that the Bible is written in. We mentioned before that, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Those are the two choices. Jesus succinctly puts it in that verse the two choices we have. We will either perish or we have everlasting life with Christ. And that's why Christ came into the world. That's why he died on the cross. That we could have everlasting life rather than perish. It's not everlasting life in heaven or everlasting life somewhere else. It is those two choices. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And this has implications for what Jesus did on the cross. Because at Calvary, did Jesus pay the price? See, if the wages of sin is death, and Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for sin. But if the price for sin is eternal torment, then Jesus didn't pay it. Because Jesus died, but he rose again three days later. He really did die. And so he paid the price. But he didn't... He wasn't tormented eternally. I think he was tormented on the cross. He was separated from God. And that really, in essence, is what hell is. If we're looking at what is hell, it's the separation from the source of life, which is God. You know, Jesus died on a cross, but do you remember when we talked about Jesus being the Lamb of God and how in the Old Testament they would bring a lamb confess their sins on that lamb and then that lamb will be sacrificed and will be burned in the fire. You remember that? Those flames of fire represent God's judgment against sin. The Bible says that we need to understand that sin is exceedingly sinful. And it tells us that Jesus became sin for us. That's mind-boggling to understand that Jesus became sin for us and suffered the separation from God so that he could deliver to us that eternal connection to God. And Jesus suffered the judgment of God against sin. And the reality is for us, he is our only hope. 
I mentioned last night, Jesus is not your best hope of salvation. He's your only hope of salvation. Jesus is your only hope. And he has taken the judgment against sin upon himself so that we can enjoy an eternal relationship with God. Jesus would rather go through hell for you than to live eternally without you. Do we get that? Jesus would rather go through hell for you than to live eternally without you. And so Jesus bore the brunt of judgment against sin. And the reality is, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so we need Jesus to deal with our sin. If we cling to sin, we will share its fate. And so Jesus says, come to me, confess your sins, repent, and I will grant you everlasting life based on my death at the cross. Well, here's another verse that deals with hell. This is Mark, and Mark is writing, but Jesus is speaking. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. And another verse says, into the fire that is not, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. You ever heard that? where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And people have these pictures of what hell might be like. The word here used for hell is actually a place in Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. That's the word that Jesus used in this passage. And when he says the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, the Valley of Hinnom at the time of Jesus used to be the city dump. And they used to put all their garbage in the valley of Hinnom. And sometimes there would be animal carcasses there. And that's why the worms would be inside those animal carcasses. And they used to have a a fire continually burning there to get rid of the refuse. And so this is what Jesus is picturing when he says this. He's basically talking about the final destruction. Um, Of course, the valley of Hinnom, if you go there today, I've been there a couple of times. In fact, when I went there, there's a, a nice grassy area and there were some families having a picnic there when I went families having a picnic in hell how'd you like that but that's the word that Jesus used and we've translated it in English into hell but it's actually a place the valley of Hinnom which at the time of Jesus was a city dump it's not burning anymore is it it's not burning today and so that's what that meant What about the idea of unquenchable fire? You know, if it's unquenchable, surely it's not going to go out. Well, notice in Jeremiah, God had been pleading with his people. God had designed that his people would be this light on a hill, that they would shine out to the nations around the world, declaring who God was and what he was like. But they got tired of God and they went, after all of the other nations and the pagan gods and the pagan practices of all the nations around them. And God said through Jeremiah, but if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. And that's exactly what happened after the time of Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar came back. He actually went to Jerusalem three times, but on the final occasion, he came back and took away slaves. He took away 
treasure and he set the place on fire and Jerusalem was burned to the ground. And that's exactly what happened. But the fire went out. When the Bible talks about the fire not being quenched, it means that no human can put it out. I don't have one with me. You probably wouldn't allow me to bring a box of matches in, would you? But if I had a box of matches and I struck a match, you ever seen that done where they sort of hold the, the hot end and they burn the match all the way through? And nobody quenches the flame and the, it burns all the way through to the end and then finally what happens? It goes out. It goes out because its work has been done, but nobody quenches the fire. To quench is to deliberately extinguish. And the same was true with Jerusalem. It was burnt with fire. It was destroyed, but it's not burning today. John Stott, he's an Anglican theologian, and this is a truth about the truth about hell is being recovered by Christians from the Bible. It was always in the Bible, but it's being recovered from the Bible because the idea of eternal torment had been brought into the Christian church early in its history. So John Stott, he's an Anglican theologian, he says this. As a committed evangelical, he says, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, although we talk about that in a minute, but what does God's word say? And in order to answer this question, we need to survey the biblical material afresh and to open our minds, not just our ears, to the possibility that scripture points in the direction of annihilation, in other words, the final end. And that the doctrine of eternal conscious torture has to yield to the supreme authority of scripture. It cannot, I think, be replied that it is impossible to destroy human beings because they are immortal. For the immortality and therefore indestructibility of the soul is a Greek, not a biblical concept. And so he recognises, this Anglican theologian recognises that this has come from Greek mythology into Christianity, not from the Bible. Again, Edward Fudge from the Church of Christ, he says, pagan Greek thought patterns entered the Christian stream early in its history and have flowed along almost unnoticed for centuries. Here's a question, though, for those who might have believed in everlasting torment. If it wasn't forever, would you be disappointed? I remember uh, talking to a couple who um, had come from a faith tradition that believed in everlasting torment. And I said to the gentleman, I said, suppose for a moment that you were saved but your wife was lost and your wife ended up in hell if it didn't last forever, would you be disappointed? And he said, yes. You should have seen his wife's face. <laughs> because here's the thought, why would we want it to last forever? We have very brief lifetimes down here on earth. How could it be just that God would punish somebody for the sins of one brief lifetime for all eternity? How could God be regarded as just in such a circumstance, it really couldn't work. Ezekiel says this in Ezekiel 18.23, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? Does God have pleasure in the death of the wicked? And not that he should turn and from his ways and live. He goes on, verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore turn and live. 
God is saying to us, turn and live. Come back to me. Allow me to heal your wounds. Allow me to grant you everlasting life. Don't plow on towards destruction. In Isaiah 55, verse 7, I want you to notice what it says here. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The Bible says that God is forgiving, he is merciful, he will abundantly pardon. The Bible says that God is slow to anger, he is long-suffering. You think of the thousands of years that God is waiting, waiting for the children to come home. But he has to bring an end to all of this at some point. It would not be merciful for God to allow sin to run its course forever. Another fascinating line in the Bible that we see a few times, Hebrews 12, 28, 29, it tells us that our God is a consuming fire. And that's an interesting thought. Our God is a consuming fire. You remember when God spoke to Moses? Where did he speak to him from? A bush. What what was happening to that bush? It was on fire. It was on fire, but the bush was not being consumed. God spoke to him out of that fire. You remember the children of Israel, they were led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and what by night? A pillar of fire by night. One of the kids shouted out that answer. Good, great answer. Somebody knows the Bible, that's great. Um, John the Baptist said of Jesus, he says, I baptize you with water, but someone comes after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell out on them uh, and it would look like tongues of fire. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. Notice this, as darkness cannot remain in the presence of light, so sin cannot remain in the presence of God. You read those verses in the Bible where it says, no one can see God and live? Remember those verses? If God were to come down, sometimes we wonder, why doesn't God just come down and give us a hug? If God came down in his unbridled, unveiled glory and gave you a hug, we'd probably go poof and disappear, right? Because our God is a consuming fire and God has to deal with the sin problem because sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And so God devised a plan how he could redeem humanity and that we could dwell with him. Notice in Ezekiel, uh, sorry, in Exodus 24, 17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. God had to do something so that we can dwell in his presence. Notice this, Isaiah 33, 14 and 15. It says, the sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burnings? It's a good question. And then it says, those who walk righteously and speak what is right. Basically, those whom God has clothed with his righteousness can walk in the everlasting fire. God has done something for us through Christ that enables us to dwell in his presence. 
Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ in order that we might stand in the presence of a holy God. Without it, we can't survive. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? And they chose to be obedient to God. They chose to stand firm even though everybody else was bowing down to Babylon. And they got thrown into the burning fiery furnace. But somebody went in there with them. And that was Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus was in the burning fiery furnace with them and they were not burned. In fact, the only thing that got burned was the the ties that bound them. They got burned. They were free in the fire. Walking around with Jesus only because of his righteousness. So what I'm trying to say here is the very nature of God and the very nature of sin are polar opposites and sin cannot exist in the presence of God. Therefore, God has to deal with the sin in our lives and we must be clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked last night about baptism. Notice what it says here in Galatians 3.27. For as many of of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. We've made that commitment to accept his salvation purchased on the cross and then for him to place upon us his robe of righteousness that we can stand in the presence of a holy God. What have we learned about hell today? When is hell? Well, it's at the end of time. Where is hell? Is in war's end? No, it's on earth, all over the earth at the end. What is hell? The end of sin and sinners. How long does it last until its work is done? The Bible tells us that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no, nor sorrow, nor crying. There'll be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. How could there be an eternally burning hell and God to say there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more sorrow. How could that be the case if God had some boiling pot somewhere where he was burning the wicked forever and ever? The good news about hell this morning is that Jesus experienced hell so that you could experience heaven. Jesus experienced that separation from God so that we can experience heaven. The good news about hell is that God will not torment anyone forever. And the good news about hell is that sin, suffering and Satan will come to an end. That is good news. God is going to deal with sin. It needs to be dealt with. It's the cause of all the pain in the world today. God is going to deal with it and he'll bring an end to sin, suffering and Satan. You know, some people in that paradigm of eternally burning hell. Some, some imagine that the devil's down there and he's in charge of hell and he's sort of prodding people with his pitchfork and turning them over and that's not in the Bible. The Bible says of the devil, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you. I turned you into ashes upon the earth and in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples were astonished at you. You became a horror and shall be no more forever. 
God says that the devil will be no more forever, and that's tremendously good news. And then God says in Nahum 1.9 that affliction will not rise up a second time. Why won't rebellion rise up a second time? Because mainly, for one of the reasons, you and I will be there to testify to the goodness of God in that though we had rebelled, he came down and died on a cross for us and says, won't you come home? And he redeemed us by his blood and took us to heaven and we'll be able to say, you don't want to go back to the war, we know what it was like. You ever seen uh, the veterans on Anzac Day and they're being interviewed? What was it like to be in the war? That's what it'll be like in heaven for us, I think. Because we'll be the veterans. We'll be the ones who were in the conflict. What was it like to be down there? How did God deliver? We'll finish on this uh, final verse and then an illustration and then we'll have a song. But nevertheless, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.13, nevertheless we look... According to his promise, we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's God's plan for us. God plans to have a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to make it all brand new again. And he's offering us a place there. Many of you would remember Black Saturday, the bushfires back in 2009. I was living in Victoria at the time. And on that day... Fires blazed all across Victoria and other places in the country, I guess. But there were many, many fires in Victoria and 173 people lost their lives in the Black Saturday bushfires. I was living in Bendigo at the time. I think it was 47 degrees on that day. And I think it was 47.9 degrees on that day. 50 homes were lost in Bendigo. Two people died in Bendigo where we came from. And after that event, after the Black Saturday bushfires the government in Victoria had a major inquiry to see how could we do things differently to avoid this kind of catastrophe. 173 people died, over 400 people were injured. How could we respond to this better in the future? And so they set up a system with the telcos, with Telstra, so that when a bushfire had begun, when there was bushfire in your area, a text message would be sent to your phone if you were in that district to say, there's a fire approaching, get out of the way. And then in 2012, again bushfires raged in Victoria and they had news reports of how the firefighters were, were doing with those fires. But there were also reports of people saying on camera, we didn't get our text message. We didn't get the warning. We didn't get the message telling us the fire was on its way. God has provided the text message. God has provided it for humanity so that we can know that there is a fire coming and there is a way to get out of the way of the fire. It's to stand behind Jesus. Jesus is our protection from the fire. Nothing else will do it. Nothing else you have, no home you've built, no bunker you've built, nothing else will protect us from that judgment that is coming except Jesus. Because he's our deliverer. He's our saviour. And he's our Lord. And so my appeal to you today is to accept Jesus as your saviour and Lord. 
because he's the only one that can save us. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin will be eradicated. Praise God. But that doesn't mean we have to be destroyed. We can be saved by placing our lives in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be our experience when Jesus comes in the clouds of glory. It won't be far away. God has sent out the text message. There's a place where we can be safe, and that place is Jesus.